Welcome to episode 14 of After the Breach, a podcast for whale enthusiasts. We're your hosts from Friday Harbor on San Juan Island, Washington, Jeff Friedman and Sarah Shimazu. We are professional whale watching captains and guides with Maya's Legacy Whale Watching here in Friday Harbor. Joining us today is Aaron Gless, the executive director of the Pacific Whale Watch Association. Today, we're going to catch you up on our latest sightings from the Salish Sea, and we're going to speak with Aaron about responsible whale watching and the Pacific Whale Watch Association. Uh, welcome, Aaron. Ahoy, Sarah. Ahoy. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So we just got off the water, the three of us, um, on a trip, and so many <laughs> whales out there lately, and uh, it's, it's just been absolutely incredible up here. Yeah, if Jeff sounds a little bit drained, it was just a long trip. We're just recovering now from our our five hours on the water. So yeah, we had uh, thirteen killer whales, two humpbacks. Yeah, uh, two humpbacks, uh, not together, separate, but well, separate in terms of our <laughs> definition of separate. <laughs> yeah, uh, but they were what maybe a couple miles apart. Yeah, maybe at the end of it, five to seven yeah. miles apart. Um, but it was a mom and and daughter, eleven uh, year old. 11 or 12 year old daughter, 12 year old Zephyr, Zephyr and mom Divot. I don't think we have an age on Divot. Yeah. Oh yeah, we uh, do. We do. Yeah. 2003. Yeah. And they are part of what, what I like to call our, our Royal family of, of humpback whales, because <laughs> uh, if you tuned in, I think it was episode two, we talked about the humpback or episode three, maybe. Oh, one of those early, one of those, one early, of those episodes. early episodes, uh, the humpback comeback. Um, Divot was uh, the calf of big mama who is credited as being the first humpback to rediscover this old feeding area. So uh, saw, saw Zephyr and Divot today, and uh, towards late in the tour, uh, a group of 13 killer whales. Uh, we've, been, we've been seeing the Bigs killer whales in, in pretty big groups uh, many days this, this spring. And this past week, we had an amazing encounter right out in front of Friday Harbor, going down San Juan Channel with 19 Bigs killer whales. Uh, they were pushing really hard against the tide. Uh, they, were, they were going into the tide and porpoising through it. Uh, had our, our famous whale, uh, Chainsaw, uh, T-63 in that group, and T-87. Yeah, and uh, try it as hard as we could. To get a photo of the two of them in, in frame together. And actually, Jeff, I think you managed to do it. But, um, man, we were just... All day. <laughs> all day. So hard two, all over, day. Over two different trips during the day, we were trying to get the two of them in one shot. Because these are these are two, like, icons um, for the big killer whales. Uh, T87 is... How old is he? 62? Uh, he was estimated. estimated born in 1962, so... So 61. Yeah. Estimated 61. And T-63 Chainsaw is in his 40s and uh, really distinctive dorsal fin. We've talked about him a few times on our podcast. And we, if we see him at all, it's, it's typically during this time of year, during the spring months. And to try and get a shot, I'll post it in the show notes. I got one shot, but it's not like... We wanted a shot of the two of them like side by side. And they were at one point like side by side underwater. And then they just would come up on opposite like breathing cycles. Yeah. So we never, never got the shot we were dreaming of, but we did get, get one shot. Um, 
of the two of them in in one frame, and I'll I'll post that. And then Sarah, do you want to talk about because you read about an encounter uh, with the T seventy one Bs and T one twenty four Ds? They those two families have spent uh, quite a bit of time down in South Puget Sound. Yeah, they've been down there for they like uh, and over we were, a month. we saw them today, and we did see them today, and we saw them. There was a trip, but that had to be at least a month ago, and they've been down in Puget Sound since then. Yeah, they've been there a lot. Um, and Aaron, I think I talked to you about it, but um, it was Monday, uh, and I didn't see it myself, but heard about it. The ferry, and I am drawing a blank on exactly which one it might have been. The South down there had to come to a complete stop because these two families had kind of driven a stellar sea line up under the bow of the ferry and were attempting to kill it. <laughs> it was just like, I was like, it's just crazy to me, like to think of these two families next to this, you know, huge ferry, completely not, didn't have any issue with the ferry being present at all, but we're using it, you know, potentially Well, the stellar might've been using it to try to get away from the, the whales, but, um, very, what like, a, what very a likely. crazy, encounter that must have been well and it it shows what we talk about this on the boat all the time uh these whales hunt and and feed around all kinds of of boats not i mean we obviously see predations quite a bit but when we see them we'll see them when ferries go by when the big uh cargo ships go by uh and you know in this case they were it, it wasn't just going by it was right there in the hunt and also, like we say, these are their waters, and they are really aware of what's going on around them, and they're pretty dialed in. If, if they're dialed in on a sea lion, that's that's their priority. But they're still aware of the ferry right there. Yeah, and I just looked. I just found it. So it was the ferry Spokane. It was the Seattle to Bainbridge run. So you know, one of the main runs down there in the Sound. And yeah, they, the sea lion apparently bolted for the ferry and the killer whales followed after him. So, oh wow! but he, he did live. He, he lived. So. That's well. And we talked about that. I think last time like, we, we, we do see unsuccessful hunts on stellar sea lions. Yeah, we do. Uh, another cool thing with the bigs killer whales. I mean, they just keep coming and coming, but we had the entire T65 family reunion and I'm not sure that I've ever seen all of them together all at once before. I don't think that I have ever seen that before. Maybe I have, but I don't think so. Yeah. Um, not, and I'm sure that it happens more often than well, we see. Sure. Um, and I, I have to correct you. It wasn't the entire because T65. No, that's true. A5. That's true. T65A5 was not present. My bad. Yes, he was up north. He was, well, he was, uh, yeah, he was, but up not, north, by, not, not, not by, by a lot. lot, just a, a few miles with another family. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always seems to be the one. He's turned into a social butterfly and is just kind of rotating through the population. Yeah. What was really interesting to me about that was that, you know, we had the large group with like T63 and T65 and uh, T23. And then T23Ds and then 65As and 65Bs. And I know those are all just a bunch of numbers and letters. We're going to talk about them more later in the episode. But um, just the path of that group and then this smaller group, which was actually T23C, so the daughter of one of the whales that was in the other group, and T65A5, like they would have been in earshot of each other earlier in the day, but they chose to stay separate, you know? Very, very interesting. Although that's... 
again, that's separate for us. To, right. To them, right. We, we, you know, we don't really know their definitions of right. how far do they have to be away from each other to not be together. Yeah, a few thousand miles. <laughs> right. So we're going to, uh, after we talk to Aaron, we'll run through the entire T-65 power family with uh, T-65 and her two daughters and all her grandkids. We'll, we'll give you some, some details on this match line, on the different match lines here and why it was so special to see this big family reunion. But uh, prior to that, welcome, Aaron. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much. I work with you all the time, but this feels very formal. It's not formal at all. This should not feel formal at all. This should feel, uh, Aaron was with us on the Silver Bank and to see the humpbacks in off the Dominican Republic. Yep. This should feel as informal as sitting down with a couple of bottles of <laughs> Dominican, Dominican wine. Republic white oh, uh, Chardonnay. I'm, I'm feeling ready. All right, let's do this. Excellent. Well, t- tell us a little bit about you, your background, and how you ended up as executive director of the, of the Pacific Whale Watch Association. Yeah, I knew this was going to <laughs> be the first question, and so I was trying to come up with something cute, but the truth is I did not take a kind of traditional straight path uh, to the whale watch world. I know in working with so many of you, you you know have relocated to this area because whales were your passion, um, and I came to this area because this area was my passion and then the whales kind of came afterwards. But uh, I was born in Denver, so not near uh, the ocean at all, but I always felt really strongly drawn to, you know, water in general. I'm from the Little Mermaid, you know, generation, <laughs> nice, the nice. animated one, I should say, because we're about to enter a new live action Little Mermaid uh, era. But uh, so I loved, you know, swimming and, and the ocean and all of those things. And uh, when we would go to Denver Zoo, my favorite exhibits were, you know, the polar bears and the otters and the sea lions, just anything with water, even the um, aviaries that had ponds in the middle. I loved those. Right. So I just always was really drawn to water. And so I knew that I wanted to do marine biology. That is what I studied um, in college. And I met my uh, husband in Florida um, but he was in the military, and so he got transferred from Florida to Washington. I followed, and um, I found a kind of summer job aboard a whale watch vessel back in 2008, and I have been part of the whale watch community ever since. Um, after that, shortly after um, that first season, we got relocated yet again down to San Diego, which is another whale watching hot spot. And I worked on boats down there for several years. And then we both loved Washington. We missed it a lot. And so when he was done with the military in 2015, we moved back up and I've been here ever since. And we're glad you're here. Thank you're definitely you. glad you're here. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about the what is the Pacific Whale Watch Association? Why was it formed? When was it formed? What's the, what's the, what's the point? Um, because, uh, you know, we've been... Uh, we talk a lot on the podcast about whale watching in other parts of the world. There aren't many places where I've gone whale watching where where there's any kind of relationship whatsoever between whale watching companies, let alone a, an association that uh, they they all belong to and 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 contribute time and effort and and other things to you know really pay attention to. Yeah, so we are so unique. Um, the Pacific Whale Watch Association and what we do and how we work together in this region 
um, is something that I can only appreciate because I have worked elsewhere <laughs> where they do not have that same collaboration. And uh, I have worked, as I mentioned, in Southern California. I have gone as a whale watching guest um, everywhere from Alaska to Antarctica and many, many places in between. And, and what we do is quite special. Uh, as far as kind of the history of the Pacific Whale Watch Association, so we were formed in 1994. Prior to that, there were just a very small handful of professional whale watch companies in British Columbia and Washington. I mean, we're talking maybe four or five. And then in 1993, a little movie called <laughs> Free Willy came out and that changed everything. Um, Free Willy was about a, you know, a, a captive orca that is set free in the wild. Uh, many of the scenes from that film were filmed here in the San Juan Islands. And so once that movie came out, uh, everyone wanted to see uh, not just orcas in general, but orcas in the wild, uh, you know, as that movie taught us where they belong. And so overnight, really, it went from just a couple of whale watch companies to a situation where you had guests basically paying anybody that had a boat in the marina, hey, can you take me out to see whales? And so you had a lot of boats all at once going out looking for whales, but not necessarily professional whale watch captains behind the wheel. Um, in addition to that, uh, not having, you know, trained whale watch operators, back then, there were no formal whale watching regulations at all. And so you had lots of vessels, inexperienced drivers, and no rules, which is kind of, you know, uh, not exactly the best case scenario. And so but uh, that is what you see in some places still. It yeah. is, yes. Not, not here, but mm -hmm. you do see that in places around the world where that is the case yeah. even today. Yeah, and so uh, fortunately, um, the operators at the time were very proactive. They recognized that this was going to be a, a growing industry and that uh, it would benefit from having some, some guidelines. And so uh, I believe it was a group of eight of kind of those original professional whale watch operators came together, created the Pacific Whale Watch Association, and at that time, again, there were no formal laws about whale watching. So they put together just guidelines about, you know, recommended viewing distances, uh, slow speeds around whales. Um, they were one of the first, I believe it was in 1999, they recommended a, uh, a kind of a vessel-free zone on the west side of the San Juan Island um, area where southern resident killer whales are known to forage. That was really groundbreaking at the time. Uh, but all of those things were voluntary. And, and so the Pacific Whale Watch Association really led the charge when it came to developing those guidelines. Now, you know, almost... Um, gosh, almost 30 years later, uh, many of those voluntary guidelines have been adopted formally as laws um, on, on both sides of the border. Uh, and we continue to evolve, but um, it was really very progressive, if you think about it, to, to be in a situation where you saw a need for regulation and voluntarily implemented those rules um, without being asked. That's, that's something that's kind of unheard of if, if you kind of as you mentioned, look at, at other regions of the globe right now and, and how they practice ecotourism. Yeah, one, one of the things that really um, strikes me, and I'm really proud to be part of the Pacific Whale Watch Association and, and have been since, since I've moved here, um, and it's such a contrast to what I see in other parts of the world, and it really is unique, is the on-the-water collaboration between, you know, quote-unquote, competitors, 
Uh, it's really, it's very unique and it's really special and it feels really good uh, to, you know, to be out on the water collaborating with other whale watching companies, other captains who you consider friends. And it's, you almost have to stop and, and like, wait, that's my competitor. But you, you never really consciously think that. Yeah. And I mean, we say it on the dock too, like when we're talking about just how unique this place is, um, not just in terms of like the animals we see and, and the place itself, but in how we work together with other companies is that like once we're on the water, there is no competition. Like we really are um, a very collaborative association and group of professionals. Yeah. And I think next transition is probably to talk about how we do work together on the water. Cause I think a lot of people don't realize that um, it is a very coordinated effort, right? We're, we're not just leaving the dock haphazardly and, and going out and hoping to find whales. There's so much happening behind the scenes here in the Salish Sea with the Pacific Whale Watch Association that is not happening in places like, you know, California, for example. Um, and I use them as an example because I did work there for several years. And the type of whale watching that they do down there is very, very different. Um, it, it couldn't be more different from the Salish Sea. Uh, for example, they are in an open water situation. So you leave the dock, you head straight west, and you're just hoping to see something pop up. Here we have hundreds of, you know, reefs and rocks and islands that make it almost impossible to have a straight view to, you know, see a spout or see dorsal sure. fins pop up. And so there's so many, so many different channels and areas mm -hmm. And, and, you know, even just today, there's been so many times where we find out later that whales were there all along, right? And they just happened to be on one side of the island where we were on another. And that is something that doesn't happen in other places. But because of the, uh, the physical layout of the Sailor Sea, you have to work together mm -hmm. or you're not going to see whales very often at all. I am still in awe of our success rate collectively. You know, I would say if you combine all of our companies together, we're certainly, I, I would say at least 90%, it feels like as far as some type of whale, if you look at all of the trips everywhere, um, and that would not be remotely possible if we weren't working together. Um, also in California, you have uh, a lot of guests that are traveling to California because they are going to California and eh, a whale watch trip is just something fun that they want to do you know, on a sunny afternoon. The Sailor Sea is for the diehard whale watchers. I mean, people come here specifically to see whales. They know the types of whales that they're looking for. That's a really nice way of me saying they that the, the stakes are a lot higher. Yes. Um, we, we have very educated guests up here and that means there's a lot more pressure. Yeah. Um, and so again, out of necessity, I think we just have to work together or else nobody is going to have that great experience, right? You might have one day a month that you're the first ones to find whales, but all of those other days of the months, you really are going to rely on your neighbor for that. Um, but the collaboration that we have that you two alluded to is so unique because you did describe us as friends. That in its own uh, is a really big deal. And I'm not going to name names, but again, when I worked in San Diego, it went so far as to us having codes so that people would not know that we were watching whales, that we were not with wildlife. Don't come in this direction, right? We, we'd tell them that we didn't have any, uh, you know, wildlife in the area, even if we were with a whale. I mean, that's just that really competitive mentality um, that happens down there. And so it was so refreshing when I moved up here 
not only did you talk to each other on the radio to see, you know, what the boat that left earlier had found, but after the trip, you can go out for dinner with the boat next to you, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we used to have companies down in California that like you could be in trouble if people found out that you were socializing with members of other companies. That's amazing. Yeah. And so it's so incredible up here that we are talking to each other on the radio. We have uh, this PWA app, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. We have social media groups. We're texting each other constantly. And it really does feel like we're all in this together. Uh, we always joke that we are huge competitors on shore. But as Sarah mentioned, once we're out on the water, we are all working together and everybody wins. That is why the Sailor Sea is known as being such a wonderful whale watching spot is because the chances of seeing whales here are very high because we work together to make sure that that happens for guests. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I will um, you know, point out a, a, a time where I was watching. I was on a week long live aboard in Norway for killer whales. And I like the story. We, we were, um, we'd left the, the harbor that morning, one morning, and uh, we had some friends, I had some friends who were out uh, on a day trip from this, this town, and they were on, going out on a Zodiac, and I saw the Zodiac that they were on, I was up in the bridge on the boat, and I saw their Zodiac, and I saw that they were with killer whales, and I pointed it out to the captain of the boat, and he said, we can't go over there. I said, but they have whales over there. He said, yeah, those are, those are their whales. We can't go over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the point where it would have been a confrontation had we gone to see, and it's like, what is this about? Like, yeah, isn't this about taking people to see whales? Like, why is this about, you know, oh, we can't see those whales because that boat's there. Right. And it's, it, and I think that is more the norm in most places. Sure. Um, and, and. From you know my standpoint with what I'm doing and and Sarah when we run trips, that collaboration starts before we even leave the dock oh, because yeah. we're calling other captains from other companies in other areas saying, "Hey, what's your plan? Where are you going to go search?" Mm-hmm. So that we're not both searching in the same place, so that that we can all spread out and have a better chance of fi- finding whales because we know once somebody does, then everybody will know what was found. Um, and the other part about that is. It's. I don't want to paint a picture like, oh, once somebody finds whales, everybody races over there because there are companies that we hear on the radio um, and we consider friends and we'll see them maybe five times a year because we're so far away from each other Mm -hmm. that it's very rare for us to end up with the same group of whales at the same time. Sure. Yeah. Um, It's the, the geographic range of the Whale Watch Association here is also something that's really unique. And I mean, it's, it's huge. It's. And, and just to like cut in because I made that little like, Oh, I really like this story when you were talking about Norway was, and I think it speaks to this kind of collaboration is after you left, left that area because you couldn't go see those whales. Um, you texted someone from yes. another company here yes. in the Salish Sea to ask if he had any sightings. And he wasn't in Norway, right. to that, be clear. That is, yeah. You yeah. texted him and he was back here that. in the Salish Sea to see if he knew where any other whales were. And he got back to you really quick. Well, and like, <laughs> Yeah, so he had, um, so this was a captain of a whale watching company in Victoria. And I knew that he, he had been to Norway several times and he was friends with um, some people that 
I think it's the um, Norwegian Orca survey. And I texted him, not even thinking like, what time is it in Victoria? I have no <laughs> right, idea. Right. And, um, and I texted him and, and was like, hey, do you, are you still friends with the Norwegian Orca people? I'm here and we're having a hard time finding whales. And within 10 minutes, he texts me back and he's like, yeah, I just was texting with them. They have killer whales right offshore of the lighthouse outside of town right now going north. And it's like, wow, the, the reach of the Pacific Whale Watch Association <laughs> went all the way to Norway at that point. <laughs> yeah. And here um, in the Salish Sea, the Pacific Whale Watch Association, right now we have 30 member companies. Um, so we have 30 active members currently. The farthest south is downtown Seattle. Uh, the farthest north is actually Telegraph Cove uh, on the north end of Vancouver Island. Yeah. And farthest west, a couple of years ago, um, one of our member companies opened up a location in Port Renfrew out on Vancouver Island, which is just near the um, opening uh, to the Juan de Fuca Strait. And then they actually, on their trips, go out into the open Pacific. So we've got fantastic coverage in this region. Uh, and as you mentioned, sometimes you'll know where whales are, but they might not necessarily be within range right, of you. Exactly. But at least we know that information. Um it helps you know who's in the neighborhood, but once you know where one group of whales is, it actually still tells you, you know, basically who's still on the table, right? That's why we try to mm -hmm. do so much photo ID work on scene is if we knew that there were, you know, six groups of big killer whales in the area yesterday and today we found two, well, chances are there's probably at least, you know, one or two groups hiding somewhere else. Um, and, and so, you know, those are still in play. So uh, it helps to find whales by knowing where whales are located, but it also helps you kind of get an idea of what else could be out there if it hasn't been found yet. Yeah. Well, and, and there's also collaboration with uh, some other companies and associations outside of the PWWA yeah. that, that even expands that range further. Yes, uh, we have a really great relationship with uh, NIMSA, which is a North Island Marine Mammal Stewardship Association. They're based out of Campbell River area as well as North Vancouver Island, and then also the Campbell River Association of Tour Operators. And so we, um, they're more north uh, of our typical operating range, but they share their sightings information with us using, again, that PWA app that we'll talk about. But that is so helpful because, as I mentioned, if we find out that they found, you know, 10 groups of Biggs killer whales up in Campbell River, it doesn't leave a whole lot of, <laughs> of <laughs> killer whales for us down here, right? So, so if they haven't seen any, then we might know that there's a more of a chance that they'll be down south and just things like that. But they're, they're a really great ally to have. We just learned so much more information from kind of bringing them into the fold, even though they're not part of our association. They have their own geographic associations. And by working together, it really just enhances the whole network. Yeah. Yep. And from my perspective, somebody like, obviously I run a, a whale watch company, but this is, this is my passion. I do this because I love it. And you know, from my perspective, this kind of collaboration should be taking place all up and down, you know, the west, the entire West Coast from California all the way up to Alaska. Yeah. As far west as Arguably as Hawaii. the world, really, like this this yeah. benefits not not just us, because really, like you said, Jeff, we're we're not we're doing this because we love it, because we love the, the whales and we do like want to protect them. That's you know, I I don't do this for the money. We've talked about this before. Um and it it benefits the whales and we'll talk about that, the sentinel actions and, and the positive effects that, you know, having professional operators 
on the water, um, you know, gives to the whales. Um, but arguably, like, this is a, a good thing and should be looked at worldwide. Well, and, and it also gives us knowledge and insight. I'm thinking specifically with uh, big killer whales, but it would this would be great with southern residents. And certainly it, it, it's great with humpbacks, sure. too, is it gives us the ability to see when we get sightings reported really far north and then you know 18 hours later it's like whoa they covered 160 miles yeah in the last 18 hours and you can start you know you can track associations of different humpbacks who hang out together and different group mm-hmm. different match lines of bigs killer whales that spend time together and then part and oh this group went up to alaska and got this group and brought them down and and it increases our knowledge and understanding of them as a species, uh, which it definitely benefits them, but it benefits, you know, it's it really good stuff to know. And it just continues creating more questions and more fascination about, about who these whales are and their lives. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. I mean, I am trying while you're speaking to think of a downside of collaborating right and and, <laughs> and like maybe on that one day again that one day a month that you're the only boat out there with whales and you didn't tell anybody maybe that would be the i guess the draw but as you just mentioned research benefits from collaboration as whale watch companies you're benefiting your guests are benefiting because more people are getting to experience these animals and the animals are benefiting as well because of what we're learning about them because there's this kind of physical protective presence which we'll talk about but yeah there's no downside in my opinion and so i do hope that uh folks from other regions can use us as a model and see how successful it has been. And we have all of these companies working together and everybody is benefiting, you know, everyone uh, is successful because we're working together. And so maybe if they see that they can, uh, they can emulate that in their regions. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we rise together and it's, Mm -hmm. it's not just for whale watching. I mean, I, I think about this as just a business model in other industries and how, I, I feel so lucky to be involved in in this industry, in this place with this going on, that I love working like this where everybody's in this together. And it would just mm-hmm. be very interesting to take that kind of a of perspective and and model into other industries that outside of whale watching. Yeah. It, it's it, it would I think it is I can't imagine working any other way at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some of the, the tools we use. You've you've referenced the app, which is uh, that's definitely something that I have this dream of, of, of <laughs> having having people all over the world. Um, I I do when when I was the one time I was in Bremer Bay, uh, with killer whales, and we we lo- put a log in the app. Uh, Just to for be the clear, Aaron Jeff put a log on the app. I did not, <laughs> so I did not screw up that data. <laughs> I've I've learned some tricks and tips of how to filter out some of these these. Uh, <laughs> errant logs yeah i i was really it it caught my attention when i was processing a report a couple of months ago and saw that someone had seen you know type a killer whales and i was like where (laughs) and then i realized it was in antarctica so one of our operators that was working down there over the uh the northern winter logged logged some orcas from down south but uh yeah so let's talk i guess let's start from the beginning which is what does it mean to be a member of the pacific whale watch association right so um these are groups that are 
voluntarily joining our organization. We do, um, as far as our mission goes, we are dedicated to education, conservation, and responsible wildlife viewing. So if you agree to join the Pacific Whale Watch Association, you have to also agree that those are your three primary goals for whale watching, right? You're going to be responsible. You're going to educate your guests. It's not just, you know a quote show. That's one of my biggest pet peeves, <laughs> yeah, right? Yep. This is not a show. You're out there to educate guests. We are out there to give back and make sure that people know how to protect these animals. And we are going to do it responsibly when we're showing these animals to our guests. Uh, and so that's really the, the ethos of the association. And then uh, in turn, uh, to be a member, you will receive um, this network that we have access to. And so we have some tools to help share sightings and communicate with each other privately. Uh, in, in the olden days, you know, um, we would have uh, a private, uh, repeater or private radio channel, which we still have, and we still use every single day. It's very valuable. I have one in my living room at home too, so I can keep track of what's going on on the water. Uh, we do have social media groups that are private. So only members, uh, that are currently employed with Pacific Whale Watch Association companies have access to that, but everything changed in 2018 when we got the Pacific Whale Watch Association app and things have never been the same. And, uh, we are whale watching in the future with, <laughs> with that app. I mean, we, we were talking about this, uh, during a meeting a few weeks ago, but it's hard to even imagine life without it because it's it's made, it's made everything so easy. So I I definitely want to talk a little bit about that app um, because it is, it's so different from anything that they're doing anywhere else when it comes to professional whale watching. And, and we, I mean, we lean on it. I fire that app up as soon as I'm up in the morning. Yep. Yep. And I'm, yeah, we're on it all day and, and checking notifications on there. Yeah. And, and so much to uh, the dismay of many, this is not a publicly available app, right? So this is for Pacific Whale Watch Association members and their crews, their captains, their naturalists, their crew members. Uh, we also share our app uh, with researchers, uh, you know, emergency responders like oil spill response that came up last year with the Aleutian Isle incident. Um, but we're... Uh, um, we're uh, providing that information to to a lot of folks, ferry captains, professional pilots, all these folks that that would also benefit from knowing where whales are in real time. So you can't log on and, and just look if you're out there on your own recreational vessel, but uh, all of us use that app. And um, as Jeff mentioned, once you find whales, you log it in the app and throughout the entire day, we can, we can open that app and see where the whales are, who they are. If we know the IDs, we enter that information, the direction that they're moving in. Uh, it's really awesome. We also collect other information such as, um, the number of whales that are there, uh, the number of vessels that are there. So we try to regulate the number of vessels that we have on scene at any one time. Um, so, uh, Gosh, yeah, we just use it for so much, and, and we're so, so lucky that we had that. So 2018 is when we first um, started utilizing that app. It really is amazing, and I, I would love to post uh, an image in the show notes of what a day can look like on the app. And you you can actually access sightings over the last few days on there, and so you can literally see where a, a group of whales travels over the course of like three days and you can see them like, Oh, they, they were first 
found near Seattle and now they're all the way up by Campbell river. And you can, you can actually see how, Mm -hmm. how they went up there. And it's, it's, it's really cool. And it's, I mean, we really depend on it, but it, it logs incredible information that we can access later, like vessel counts. Um, we do share it with in real time. We get asked a lot on, on the boat if we share our sightings with, uh, any scientific research organizations and and it's like yeah we do and they i we don't have to share it they have access to this in at the same mm-hmm. in the same real time that i do so it's not like we give them a report at the end of the month they've got access in in real time yeah so the real time is really important as i mentioned we've got uh you know the canadian coast guard is utilizing that uh, a lot of the ferry captains a lot of the shipping vessel pilots uh, so lots of folks are using it for real time, but we do also um, contribute the historic data. So at the end of the year, we have um, a lot of researchers who want to see where whales were during the year. Right now, um, just to think of a few off the top of my head, uh, we just gave some information to some folks that are helping um, figure out where like kelp farming would be uh least you know impactful so where would whales not be impacted if you were to put like a kelp aquaculture farm because that's something that's uh here in washington that they're exploring as far as um you know starting to grow kelp commercially um so that's one thing you know you wouldn't necessarily see the immediate connection between kelp farming and whale watching right but we have so much information and they reached out to us asking if we could provide them with um, you know, all of our information over the last couple of years. So that's just one of many examples. But um, when we're looking at, you know, changes in shipping lanes, uh, the government in Canada a couple of years ago started investigating whether moving their shipping lanes would benefit whales. And so we provided them with all of our um, historic data uh, so that they could see, you know, where whales are most likely and least likely to be. So little things like that, again, where you wouldn't necessarily think of whale watchers as being involved in the discussion, we are out there literally every day. I mean, I mean we have some type of presence out there on the water almost every day. And uh, most research organizations only have a budget to maybe be out there for a couple of weeks a year. And, and so we are a huge resource. And it seems like Finally, in the last couple of years, they're really tapping into that and understanding just how much we see and how much we know about those whales that they're interested in. I think and I just want to connect a couple dots here. Um, obviously, there's a benefit to the association where it, it helps everybody find find whales. But the far reach of the association geographically and working with the North Island Association and collecting all this data of where whales are. Um, and being able to track that historically, that has never been done before. And you're right, the like research organizations can't, they don't have the budget to go out on the water every day like we do. And when, when I say out on the water, the geographic range, no, no research organization can even, even if they had the budget to go out every day, they don't have, have that geographic range. There, there's no other way to replicate collecting data in this way and it this is you know we started in 2018 and so it's really just getting going it, we're gonna have this incredible collection of data of whale movement in the entire salish sea and it's it's and beyond that's going to be absolutely incredible this is why i also dream of like it'd be great <laughs> to have this in california and hawaii and alaska because these aren't 
different necessarily different whale populations. There's overlap in whale movements. Yeah, absolutely. The same whales throughout that that entire range. Yeah, as we'll talk about later with the T65s. Exactly. Um, the other one of the other things, and I do want to uh, talk about uh, one other feature of the app. But before that, the part of the app is, and part of the the association is, there's a whole agreement um, on etiquette. Um, if you're a member of the association, you're also agreeing to certain etiquette. Um, one of those things is is using the app uh, and posting in the app, not just not just taking, but also giving. Uh, but there's a whole etiquette of how to drive around whales beyond regulations. I mean, the re- re- regulations are obvious, but there are other things that, w- mm-hmm. that we do and how to drive and treat each other. Um, so that, that's another benefit. Um, but I want to talk about uh, the, the app as far as collecting Sentinel actions and Sentinel oh, yeah, information. Yeah. Yeah, Cause that's been, that has been incredibly useful to track that. Yeah. Yeah. Which so- I think was my idea. actually. <laughs> Well, if it was, good job, Jeff. Um, We've talked a lot about how, you know, it benefits uh, us as an association, as members, um, and and the whales as well. But really, the sentinel actions um, in a lot of ways is is what is benefiting the whales. So I I think it's really important to talk about that and the positive effect, you know, whale watching can have for whales. If if done right, whale watching can be an incredibly positive for for, yeah. wh- for whales and and that's not to say that like we are just like setting guidelines you know 30 years ago when we started and never updating them and that's just how it goes like one of the things i i really appreciate about the association here is that we're very proactive in looking at the best available science um you know we have lots of lots of things coming out we're looking at the best peer-reviewed science um just just to kind of like inform us on how best to behave. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's a lot, there's (laughs) There's a lot to unpack here. I have lots to say, but (laughs) yeah. So I think let's start with this idea of sentinel actions first. And in order to understand um, why it became important to document these things that we call sentinel actions or these protective acts that professional whale watchers undertake. Yeah. Let's define what So what is a sentinel action? So, Basically, during the course of our tours, an act that we take to help protect the whales or other wildlife. So, for example, uh, you know, flagging down a boat that's going too fast to get them to slow down near whales, calling a ferry over the radio to let them know that there's whales, you know, a mile ahead of them, stopping to pick up some mylar balloons out of the water, calling to report that you've seen an entangled whale. See, these are all things that we do every single day that we never quantified, right? We just knew that it's just part of our day. We're out there and, and we would anecdotally see that our actions could improve the behavior of other vessels. It's, it's also a result of like doing this is a, a result of this unique area as well. Cause not all places are like this where there's whale watching, but there we're in shared waterways here. There are a lot of recreational boaters, they're recreational fishermen, they're commercial fishermen, they're tribal fishermen. Uh, there are shipping lanes to the port of Seattle and the port of Vancouver. Uh, there are, this is a big area for U.S. military, Canadian military, uh, fair, two Washington and, and British Columbia ferry systems, two of the world's largest mm-hmm. ferry systems. The, these are 
very busy active waterways, and yep. busy waterways where, you know, I, I mean, look, I don't know California whale watching. Well, I've been whale watching just a handful of times and there were a few recreational boaters out there, but there wasn't a lot of traffic. Uh, being out in Norway in, in the winter, there's some, <laughs> some commercial fishing and that's it. Like there's not much. And if you want to find the whales, go to the commercial fishermen because they're probably feeding on the fish right outside the net. So these, these are busy waterways and shared waterways out here. And so this, this, like you said, this happens every day out here. Oh yeah. That's a great point. Thank you for helping to paint that picture because yes, when I would work in California, you could go your entire four hour tour without seeing a single solitary vessel out there on the water. Right. Um, here, we maybe in November or December, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, here, as you mentioned, we are basically a super highway for both whales and vessels and, and they happen to overlap uh, quite literally. Um, and so it, it is inevitable that they are going to be interacting with vessels. And what we can do as professional whale watchers is help kind of, control how those interactions with vessels go, right? Is it going to be a negative interaction or can it be a positive interaction? And so we also, and I have to say this so that I can paint the picture, we also happen to operate in a place where there's a lot of people who aren't fans of professional whale watchers. And that's a really important context. We have a lot of supporters, but we also have a lot of folks who uh, you know, for one reason or another. Um, and I think a lot of it stems around the fact that we do have the endangered Southern resident killer whale population in this area, um, who's incredibly vulnerable, only 73 animals left right now. And so there's heightened sensitivity over operating in a place where those whales can be seen. Uh, and I think that's probably what the origin was. Um, I think it's gained traction though, yeah. through there's a lot of not in my backyard and a lot of anti-tourism, uh, aspects of this. It's not people that care anything about whales. It's people that don't want people. They, they wanted the door. <laughs> they wanted the door closed behind them. Once they discovered this, I place. can see that I'm being very, I'm being very PC for, for this, but <laughs> oh wait, did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the truth is we have a lot of opponents. Um, and so we have known for years because we're the ones out there on the water with the whales. We've known that us being there can positively impact how other vessels act around those whales, but we were never keeping track. And so, uh, you know, for us to go into a meeting and say, trust us, everybody, we're really doing a lot of good out there. When you go into a room full of whale watching opponents, that doesn't carry much weight. And so once we had the app um, in 2018, we used that for about a year or two, just purely for whale sightings. And then in kind of the, the second half of 2020, we had this idea of let's actually, in addition to documenting every time we see a whale, let's document every single time that we have one of those interactions. Every time we warn a ferry, anytime we have to flag down a boat, anytime we report an entangled animal, anytime we stop to fish out, uh, you know, a, a balloon or something like that, let's keep track and, and let's see um, if we can put a number on, on the number of positive acts that we're doing. On a right. Program. How often mm -hmm. are we doing it? And, and I also think part of the effect of that is when you start tracking it, you, and maybe it's just, you notice it more, but I think you start doing it more. Um, you're, you're a little bit more committed to the action once you're keeping track of how often you're doing. Yeah. It. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's validating, you know, you want to see, um, 
what you're doing actually in the numbers, right? So, so once you have uh, kind of stats on it, you want to continue doing those things and see that number grow and grow and grow of how many acts you've performed that year. Um, and another thing that we keep track of is not just how many times we contact other vessels, but also how many times they actually do change their behavior, right? And uh, I'm happy to say uh, for 2022, we were effective in improving the behavior of other vessels that were in the area in 74% of encounters. So basically three out of every four interactions with other vessels, we were able to positively influence that vessel. Uh, unfortunately, that still means one out of four, um, we either weren't able to get their attention or uh, unfortunately the truth is there are some vessels that just don't care. You know, they feel like this is their waterway as well and they don't have to slow down for a whale if they don't want to. But the overwhelming majority of vessels that are contacted seem to be really responsive to this. Um, when you're talking about uh, recreational vessels, I think a lot of them had no idea that whales were in the area. That's the feedback I hear most is, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know there was even a whale here, right? We get, a, we get that a lot from yeah. people thanking us for letting them know. And and for the people listening, I, let me paint a couple like like examples of, of what this looks like. You paint like. that picture, I, I will paint that picture. <laughs> Um, cause people might be still kind of wondering like, well, how does, how is this working? And so recreational boaters are out there. They're not looking for whales and they're out there at, you know, when we're with whales, that recreational boater is coming by and they're, they're in midway between point A and point B they're done or with whatever they were doing, or they're going to do whatever they were, they're going to do. They're not out there looking around for whales. Um, I think the attention span for most boaters on the water is less than when you're driving a car um, because you've got a lot more space around you mm -hmm. and you don't have any traffic signals or anything like that. So they have no idea that there are whales anywhere yeah. near them. And sometimes these boaters are going 20 or 30 knots and they're going directly into the path of humpbacks, killer whales, minke whales, gray whales, whatever, whatever is out there. And they have no idea. They do not want to go on at high speed on top of, of whales. And it's right. You know, there, there's the obvious issue with like safety, but it's also, it's etiquette, yeah. right? It's nice for the whales to, to go around and go slow. And it's nice for the people that are out there experiencing being with whales and, and wildlife to not have that person zip by. So people, when we, when we do alert them and we have various ways of doing that, they're really thankful. Yeah. It's a generally positive outcome. And I, I would say like for a lot of people that are maybe not familiar with boating or being on the water, like they might just think like, well, how could they not know a whale is there? Like, it's so obvious. This is a 90,000 pound animal for some of our, you know, humpback whales. Um, it's not, it's not always obvious and they're not like, you know, if you're not, um, experienced in looking for whales and looking for the signs of whales, it's not always obvious. I would say most of the time it's not, it's not obvious that there are whales in the area. We put a lot of effort into finding whales and we're looking for them. Right. If you're not looking for them, you're never going to, you'll have no idea. Yeah. You can go right on top of them and you'll never know that they were there. Yeah. And that's one thing that, uh, again, in, in years past, um, one argument of kind of opponents of whale watching is that 
professional whale watch vessels act as a magnet, right? So if you're there watching whales, you're going to signal to all those other recreational vessels in the area that you're with whales and you're going to just draw, you know, dozens of other recreational vessels over these whales. And that just does not happen. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, I have a peer reviewed paper in my head of that proves that that's just, a, it's crap. That, that the magnet idea. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, Soundwatch, for example, the boater education group Soundwatch, they're out there every year monitoring the number of vessels around whales. And they too have not noticed, you know, that significant magnet effect, quote unquote. And when they ask boaters, you know, if a boater is around whales, uh, if they ask that boater, well, how did you find these whales? Uh, the overwhelming majority of them just happen to stumble across them, right? Well, that's exactly mm -hmm. right. The magnet idea works when there are two or three places where we see whales that are high traffic boating areas. Um, they're like a couple out, and they're usually right outside busy harbors. And the thing is, so it will draw boats in to go look at the whales um, because they see whale watching boats when they're going by. But you know what? Those recreational boaters are modeling their behavior after us and they're viewing whales appropriately. And if we weren't there, they would just be zipping right on top of them. Right. Yeah. That's, that's another really good point. So I was talking about sentinel actions, which is, you know, an actual act where we are going out of our way to contact another vessel just by being there, just by helping to model what those appropriate distances and speeds are, that is also positively influencing behavior. And there's data to back that. There is, yeah. There was a really great study that came out last year that showed that the number of dangerous recreational vessel infractions around killer whales here in this region uh, more than doubles if there's not a professional whale watch vessel there to model that appropriate behavior. So that again, is not even including contacts that whale watch vessels have with other boats just by physically being there. Um, I, I always kind of equate us as being like a crossing guard or a lifeguard or however you like to think it, but we are there um, as a protective presence. We're not enforcement. If we see something wrong, you know, we can't uh, issue a ticket, but we can help report that to authorities. We can help educate um, but I think that our presence absolutely makes a difference. And anyone who argues that it does not, I always invite to please come out right, on a whale right. watching vessel. Absolutely, uh, It is undeniable. Once you're out on the water and you see it firsthand, um, it, it absolutely has a difference. And um, I, I very firmly believe in that. There, there are times and, and places, especially in the summer months, where we, we can end up doing... 10 sentinel actions in a 15 to 30 minute oh, yeah. period of time. I mean, Sarah, talk about like you're out there a lot, um, you know, with, with me as, as my naturalist, you're, you're a naturalist and guide on, on, on the tours that you don't drive that it's really the naturalists that do a lot of the work. I mean, I, I can, as a captain, I can, if it's a ferry or a container ship, mm -hmm. I can call them on the, on the, on the radio, radio. Sure. but if it's a speeding recreational vessel, they often are don't even have their radio on. Right, right. Um, talk about how how easy it is to get their attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not. Um, but no, I mean, I would say 
some sometimes, especially in our busier summer months, and 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 like you said, there are certain hot spots um, for this where there are you know more boaters coming in in and out of busy harbors and that kind of thing. Um, I, I can easily spend half the trip flagging down boaters, and um, you know if I logged each boat individually, which I should be doing, but I just sometimes don't have the time for it. I'd probably be logging twenty or thirty sentinel actions, you know, in in a tour. Um, you spend more time on the bow waving, yeah. waving the, <laughs> waving the, the whale flag. warning flag. So I can't even like lift my arms by the end of the day because they're so tired from, from flagging down boats. But I, I really do believe in, in that action and seeing it firsthand flagging down, um, boaters who for the most part, see the flag and slow down and they know what it means. And then there's some that think you're like in distress and crying for help and, and that kind of thing. But, um, like like the Canadian Coast Guard boat that came out to us that thought, <laughs> yeah. thought we were yeah. asking for help. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's just I I mean the overwhelming majority of some of those busier months um we're spending a lot of time you know flagging down boats, and it's it's something that I mean we like doing it and I, I want to be very clear like we're not yeah like we have nothing we have absolutely no feelings against recreational boaters being out on the water, doing whatever they want to do that. Yeah, there's no, absolutely. we're very happy to, to be doing this. Um, and you know, we're not like, Oh my God, you guys aren't paying attention. Right. Cause as we said, we have a hard enough f- time finding whales when, and we spend a lot of time and effort looking for them. Yeah. If you're not looking for them, you're not going to have any clue. Yeah. So if you're a recreational boater out there and you get flagged down by one of us in the summer, just know that like it's it's nothing personal, right? We're just trying to like alert you to the fact that there are whales out there and we're not like muttering about you under our breaths or anything like that. We're really just like from one boater to another giving you a heads up that, hey, there's a whale in the area and, and it's a good idea to slow down. Yeah. And if you are a boater in the Salish Sea, uh, one thing to look out for, in addition to just a, you know, well-marked whale watch vessel that says <laughs> yeah. whale watching on the side that stopped, that's a really good hint that there's a whale nearby. Uh, but many of us also display what's called the whale warning flag, uh, which is a flag with a, a brightly colored whale tail on the back. And uh, if there is a whale within one kilometer of our vessels, um, it is the procedure to, you know, put that flag up, just like a diver down flag. Um, same idea. It just lets boats know that, uh, you know, Hey, we're not stopped to look at a, a bird or anything like that. There's actually a whale in this area. So please slow down, um, and kind of follow our example. So look for that whale warning flag here in the sailor sea as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think one of the important things to talk about, we've talked a lot about the, you know, Pacific whale watch association, what we do from this side of it, but, for a lot of our listeners who are enthusiastic about whales and come out whale watching, like I get a lot of emails, honestly, like how do I pick a good whale or do you know of a good whale watching company in this part of the world or this part of the country? So um, maybe we can talk a little bit about how to look for a responsible whale watching company, what to look for and those kind of best practices for the other side of this. And for wherever you're looking right anywhere in the world, not just here. how do you choose who to go out with? Yeah. Oh gosh, that is such a great question. And thank you for asking. So here in the Salish Sea, of course, I would um, automatically recommend that you go with a Pacific Whale Watch Association member because you know that we communicate with each other and we prioritize that education, conservation, and responsible wildlife viewing uh, trifecta. But if you are going 
you know, whale watching in another part of the world and you're not quite sure, I do have some advice. Um, one is just really do some good research on their website and their social media and take a look at the language that they're using. Take a look at the images that they're using and, you know, does it look like they are pretty close to whales all the time? Does their text brag about getting close to whales? You know, that type of language um, might be really great for marketing, but if you're looking for a sustainable whale watch experience, those are not the keywords that you're looking for, right? You want to look for companies that talk about responsible viewing and not disturbing wildlife. Um, one thing I'd also recommend is contact them. So once you've kind of whittled down your list of potential operators, uh, email them. You know, when I used to work for just a single whale watch company, we used to get emails all the time of like, you know, tell me what you do to make sure that you don't impact them. And if that company doesn't have a good response for you, it probably tells you that they don't think about that very often. Right. right? Um, and so really reach out. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. I think that it becomes very obvious which companies care deeply based on that response that they send mm -hmm. you, right? Absolutely. Um, but uh, that's really it. So again, just do that research on on TripAdvisor and their social media and things like that. But you'll you'll be able to to kind of see some separation between the companies that really prioritize the whale's health and safety and the ones that are just out there to try to get you a really, you know, great photo to, to take home and, and brag to your friends about. Yeah. And, and who's providing the uh, more educational experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't want to just, I mean, some people do, but I think a lot of people, uh, at least the people that come out here, like they're looking for, not just seeing and experiencing the whales, but they want to learn about them too. Right. Oh yeah, that's that's another great thing to look for too, is here in the um, Sailor Sea, the Pacific Whale Watch Association, it is a really big deal for our operators to collaborate with researchers and also um, to give back, whether that is through... Uh, you know, donations, uh, financial donations, whether it's through donations of, you know, data and, and time as volunteers or things like that. Um, we really try to make sure that we give back. And so if you're researching whale watch companies in other areas, yeah, do they have relationships with nonprofits? Do they talk on their website about some of the causes that they donate to? Um, th those are another great thing to look for when you're trying to find a sustainable whale watch operator. Yeah. And as someone that works um, not just on the water, but on the office side of things as well, Erin, um, what you were saying about them, uh, you know, c contacting companies and asking them, you know, what what are the things that you do to make sure that you're um, not having a negative impact on, on the wildlife you're viewing um, and saying, like, if they, you know, don't have a great answer, they, you know, probably don't have great practices. Um and, and I would add on to that, like if they seem frustrated that you've asked these questions, um, that's probably not a great sign. Like I always appreciate when people call and ask or email and ask those questions because it, it shows me that they care. Right. And that's honestly like what I love seeing is people that are responsible and thinking about the impact that they might have, um, you know, out, out in the world. And so if you're the company that you reach out to seems frustrated that you're asking those questions um you know they should be really embracing the fact that you're asking those questions too yeah and and i do it so so i mean i when i'm looking at a new destination that i've never been to i reach out to my contacts and i 
see if I know anyone that works in that region, if anyone I know has gone whale watching in that region and has a recommendation. Uh, but I do that homework too. So it's really mm -hmm. important to me, um, especially probably more important to me because I have this role uh, with the Pacific Whale Watch Association, I want to make sure that when I travel to other places that I am also supporting sustainable whale watching. So it's very important to me that I do my homework. Yeah. And I would say if you find a good company that, um, you know, in, in one part of the world that, you know, is responsible and, and meets all these criteria um, and you have any kind of rapport with them or even not, you've just been out with them one time, it never hurts to reach out to them and say, hey, like I, I'm going to this place. Do, I really appreciate how you operate. Do you know of anyone that kind of upholds those same standards in this area? Because a lot of time, like, you know, like attracts like, right? We're, we're looking for companies that are like us when we go whale watching at other times of the year. Oh yeah. And the whale world is very small. It's very, very small. small. Everyone knows someone who knows someone yes. in the end. It would be really cool. I would love this if, if people could you know, message us on, on Instagram or Facebook or send us an, an email to after the breach podcast at gmail.com. If you have companies that you've gone out with uh, anywhere in the world that you think are, are just incredibly conscientious and provide great education and a, a great experience and they're really into conservation we'd love to hear uh who those companies are uh at, you know anywhere in the world because uh, we do get asked a lot people email us and they're like oh we're you know going whale watching off in in new england or nova scotia and and ask ask us for recommendations and would love love to learn about companies in, in other places also because we would probably like to go out with them as well. Well, yeah, that, that, that too. <laughs> They're just making their trip list. Yeah. Yes. We're making yes. our plans for, for next off season. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. Uh, something else I, um, if you could send me, cause I'd love to post this in the show notes are some of the pictures of, we talked about our shared waterways. Some of the pictures we have of, of whales and ships and, yeah. boat and all kinds of boats and some photo examples of what Sentinel actions look like. <laughs> um, would, would, would love to post uh, post some of those, but thank you so much for for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, having me and letting me talk about what I love to do. So, a couple things before we we leave, I want to talk about uh, the T sixty fives. Yeah, uh, and we'll get into them. Also, want to let everybody know, uh, remind you that uh, Sarah and I are doing a photo workshop on two uh, two full days on the water. You're welcome to sign up for both or one. Uh, they are September 23rd and 24th. We'll post details in the, in the show notes and, uh, on, on our website, um, after the breach podcast.com. Yeah. It's a Friday and a Saturday. And then if you're like totally into it, we also have an all day trip on that Sunday. So, you know, you te technically could come up here for three full days on the water. Um, but it'll be catered, uh, catered lunch. And then we're all, I'm also going to offer, a whale ID class on zoom after the fact for anyone that signs up. So I, I have like a, a little course basically on learning how to ID whales and, and then kind of going through that. So, and, and other stuff, we'll have other fun stuff for, for those that sign up. That's a great, great time of year to be on the water. It is one of my favorites. So let's talk about the T-65s yeah, because we saw, yeah, we saw the, segment, the I guess. whole family reunion, which is rare to see. I don't know that I've ever seen it before, but uh, essentially this is the, I mean, I always refer to their power family. Uh, it's, it's, th I mean, they, it's, they're really epic. They're all incredible hunters. Um, 
starting with T65. And so, uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about them. And you're <laughs> yeah, the, throw me right into well, it. Well, <laughs> I mean, I can, I can jump into it, but, but you know them better and have known them longer than, than I have. Uh, well, I mean a little bit, sure. So, um, well, just to back up just a touch. So Je- Jeff and I realized that we've been talking a lot about um, some of these different families that are coming up in recent sightings. And maybe a lot of you know who we're talking about, but maybe some of you don't and you're new to this area or, or um, you know, you haven't even been up here yet. So we thought we would start uh, in each episode from here on out kind of introducing uh, a matriline and our big uh, killer whales. So we figured like for this one, T65 and her family would be a good a good one to start with. So we were going to do just the T65As because we talk about them a lot. But then we had this whole big family reunion. Except for T65A5. Except for T65, <laughs> who we've also talked a lot about. We have. Um, the saga of T65A5. Yeah. So T65 and her family, um, you know, I really didn't see them a whole lot before 2014 um, when T65A gave birth to T65A5. Um, But T65 uh, is an adult female born before 1968. We know somewhere, you know, er earlier in the 1960s could be earlier than that. We just don't know. Um, and so, she travels. So she's, she's the top of this, the she, first whale known in this family. Yes. Yes. And, um, she travels with her presumed son, T-63 Chainsaw. Chainsaw. Or as he's known up in Alaska, Zorro. Um, and we'll post a photo of him, but he has these really cool notches in his fin. Um, and Jeff likes to call him our celebrity whale or has, has called him that recently. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he is, for people that know whales in this area, he's a bucket list whale. Um, there are people that have been out here for yeah. decades and, and still haven't seen him because we don't see a lot of T-65 and T-63 spend the majority of their time uh, northern BC, southeast mm-hmm. Alaska. Yeah, we don't see them a whole lot. We see them, you know, usually a few times in the spring. And I would say like, I feel like they've been around a lot more this spring this, this than, year, yeah. than they have. Yeah, we've uh, seen him. Past. I mean, I think I it's uh, almost five times. Yeah, um, which is a lot. To, Usually, I, mean, I see him none times. Right, well, <laughs> and and to put more context in that, I didn't. My first five years, I didn't see him, and but I would hear people talking about him on the radio that, oh, Chainsaw is here, but he was out of our range, and it's like, come on, man. And he was here for like one day, one day, and then he yeah, was gone again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they do spend a lot of time up North. We have a lot of, um, or I shouldn't say a lot, but we have, um, some pretty consistent sightings of them up near Juneau, Alaska and in Glacier Bay. And we kind of, um, assume, I guess that that's where the family was prior to T65A and T65B kind of dispersing from mom, um, that the family spent most of their time up kind of in Northern BC and up into Southeast Alaska near Juneau and, and yeah, into these, Glacier Bay. And that yeah, these were not always Salish Sea. Uh, right, they weren't. Uh, I, You know, Jared, we had on just recently, and, and I think he saw them for the first time, like, last year or the year before, oh, the T-65As. Cool. Wow. Yeah, they were like bucket list whales for him, I think, right. is... Um, so in addition to, right, right. So in addition to T sixty three, who is her presumed son, she has two daughters, T sixty five A and T sixty five B. Yep, T sixty five A. So is her first confirmed offspring, and that's where we get the T sixty five A. So T sixty five is 
the mom. Uh, T65A is her first confirmed daughter. And then T65B is her second confirmed uh, daughter, um, calf, you know. Um, And then T65A has five surviving offspring. She's had six. And T65B now has three um, surviving offspring. And as is typical with this population of killer whales, uh, they, unlike the southern resident killer whales that, that stay in these multi-generational families, T65A dispersed from T65 with, with, with her own kids mm-hmm. and T65B dispersed with her own kids. Mm-hmm. And, um, but just because they, you know, got a job, had kids, moved out, <laughs> doesn't mean that they're out of the family. Right. We do see, so um, that's kind of a fun, funny little thing that happens and it's Mother's Day, so I'm going to mention it briefly. Is like T65A we frequently see with her sister T65B, um, or not frequently, but I think we more often them. than not, like, those are the those are the two members of the family that we would see together and, and with their kids. Yeah, I mean we'll see them together with all their kids like multiple times throughout right. like, different different times of year. So my my mom comes up here, you know, once a year, twice a year sometimes. Uh without fail every time she comes up here and she's not a, a whale watcher. Um I, she doesn't even probably know I have a podcast about whales, but um whenever she comes up here regardless if it's out with us on the research boat or on, on the boat with Maya's, uh, we see the T65As. <laughs> and on July 3rd, usually her birthday, I see the T65As. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, but, but sorry, that was a little tangent. So T65A has five kids, T65A5 that we talk about, Indy. Um, He's nine, is that correct? Yeah, born in 2014. So, so in her old, her mm-hmm. oldest is how, how Uxja, uh was born in 2004. So he's 19. Okay. So she has a 19 year old all the way down to a six. Five years. Five. Five, five. Oh, well, yep. Five this year. And then, and T65A is how old? 37. Okay. And then T65 uh, B is going to be 30 or is 30 this year, Oh, which nice. is funny because it's T65A was born the same year I was. And then my sibling was born in 1993. So easy family to remember. There you go. There you go. And, uh, and what are the range age ranges of her three kids? So T65B, uh, had her first offspring, uh, her son in 2011 and then her newest this, this year, year like early this year, maybe late last year, but right. okay. Not, but this year, this so this year. is a, this is a big family. And what was so special was to see them all together, all together. With exception of, of T65A5. Of, yeah, T65A5. But it's, I think it's the first time, and, and it's, I mean, it's cool. It's a big family reunion. Um, it was really neat to see, and and um, I think all the the, the boys were all yeah, in one yeah, group they were. together. It was T63 with, like, T65A2 and 3, the two big guys out of there, or big-ish. And, and T65B1. And T65B1, who's starting to sprout. Yeah. So it was, it was cool. It's like uncle chainsaw and his, and his, and his nephews. nephews. <laughs> yeah. It was, they were all like in this big Forming group. the boy band. Yeah. Totally playing with, playing around, rolling on each other and, and having a good time. And then they'd go back and, and check out T65 B3, the new baby. And it was, mm-hmm. it was really neat to see. And you just really get when you're watching them, 
Like you really are seeing a family reunion. It's not like, oh, this random group of whales just came together. It is yeah. like, you know, grandma got together with her two daughters and all her grandkids and it's a big party. It is. Yep. And we'll post some um, like screenshots, I think, from the ID guide that just yeah, show, that'd be great. show the family. Um, we'll kind of provide the nicknames for for them as well. Um, you know, some of them have nicknames that I don't really care for, but <laughs> <laughs> that's just my personal opinion. Um, but if you hear people talking about Artemis T65A, that's that's her T65A Artemis. Goddess of the, the hunt. hunt. And it is such a fitting name. It is. Yeah. Is is she was if you listen to the episode about the minky whale hunt, um, it was T sixty five A that was leading that entire thing. Yeah. So I think the, we'll we'll wrap this up and yeah. Uh, and if, I would say if anyone has like a mattress line that they want to hear about, yeah. um, shoot us a message and we'll we'll include that on our next um, segment on our next episode on meet the mattress lines. Yeah, we'd love, love that. You can email us uh, at afterthebreachpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can get all our contact information on our website, afterthebreachpodcast.com. Yeah, but thanks for joining in, everybody. Erin, thanks again for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, great to see you both. Thanks so much. And we will uh, sign up for our workshop if you're interested or email us and ask for more info. Uh, and we will talk with you next time and uh, stay safe out there. <laughs> stay safe out there. <laughs> <laughs>